0: Good morning. And good morning to Lexington as well and on our online campus. Excited to have you with us this morning. Yeah, you can clap for them. Sure, sure. My name is Jesse Ryder. I'm our city center campus pastor. And I want to give you a little bit of an update about our, our city center. So if, if you're new to Crossroads, you've not heard about this before, this is our downtown ministry center. Uh, last week, Pastor Dave mentioned we, we had what we called a pop-up service there. So we've been working in the community, we've been serving and, and, and kind of getting to know a lot of the people there. What a great opportunity to worship together with them. So we planned this, this pop-up service and brought our worship team down and, and they were terrific. And we just had a great time getting to worship with those we had been serving. This is a, a wonderful time and we'll be doing some more of those in, in the near future. Uh, we want to kind of update you on some things that have been going on and kind of let you know what it's like there. I want to talk a little bit about the culture of the city center right now. Because I think that there is a really, really interesting and fun thing to be a part of right there. A couple months ago we started, we, our idea was, that let's, let's do something for the city that would be beneficial to people where we could serve people that's not already being done. And so we, we decided to do free coffee and free laundry for those who needed those things. And so we had a team of people here who were dedicated, who were serving, and they said, our goal is to just go and serve in whatever way possible. And they would go, and there's faithfully serving there. But what's been really interesting, really kind of fun to watch this culture shift, is now we have guests who have seen the dedication and the commitment of our team members, saying, well, I, I want to be a part of that. I want to join the team as well. So the guests that we are serving are now serving with us. They're helping do laundry, helping clean the building, helping to just kind of get things ready. And so there's this really fun culture of just watching this population of people say, we want to serve the community in whatever way we can. And it's really a unique thing to, to watch and be a part of. Now certainly when we talk about the city center, a lot of times we talk about the, the loads of laundry and a lot of big numbers and kind of fun numbers and certainly numbers involving donations and generosity. And I, I, I want to say thank you for that. We are certainly appreciative and grateful of all the generous donations we've received. But I want to share with you an, a number that's, it's not, it's not a big number, may seem insignificant at times, but it's, it's this number 30. The other day, I was at my office at the city center. I was just working on some stuff, and someone knocked on my door. It was one of our guests who was cleaning the floors at the time, and he said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? I said, sure, what's up? He said, I want to let you know something. He said, today is my 30th day of being clean and being drug-free. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I said, man, I'm so proud of you. You've been working so hard. I said, you know, you're doing a great job. He goes, it's just been the grace of God that I've been able to do this, and I just want to say thank you. I said, well, I mean, we are so excited to kind of journey alongside of you. And and maybe you you can resonate with that story on on a personal level. No, maybe maybe you're on day one of that journey. Maybe day 10. Maybe it's day 30. Maybe it's year seven of you battling this addiction, battling this pain, battling this struggle. And can I encourage you to keep battling, to keep fighting that fight. It will be worth it in the end to keep fighting that fight. It may be difficult, it may be hard, but it will be worth it, and to keep fighting that fight. Last week, we started a new series called Legacy. It is a study through the book of 2 Timothy, and Pastor Dave talked about how Paul, who wrote this letter to Timothy, who was like a son to him, was writing to encourage him in his faith. And we talked about what it meant to have a sincere faith, and how to kind of fan the flame of your faith. And so this idea of legacy is kind of leaving behind what matters most. And oftentimes when you think of legacy, you think of kind of some advice you would give someone. Kind of a, like a one-liner. Like you just, you tell them this and just kind of be this solid one-liner. And so last week, we went around and we asked some people from around the church for some advice. We said, give us some life advice. Give us something that's going to be important for us later in life. And so we, we only, we didn't, asked just the adults, we asked some, some of our serve teams, but we also went to some of the kids and the students as well. And so I want to share just a few highlights of the advice that I received last week as I walked around asking for some advice. I had a fourth grade boy, I said, give me some solid life advice, and he says, make time for Fortnite. <laughs> Fortnite is a, is a video game that a lot of people are playing right now, make time for Fortnite. I said, okay, great advice, sure. We had one of our dolls said, don't sweat the small stuff. Okay, good. One of, uh, one of our middle school girls said, don't take candy from strangers. <laughs> Interesting life advice considering trick-or-treating is like right around this time. Okay. One, I- I'm still trying to wrap my head around this one. I-, I don't fully grasp it. It said, be the person your dog thinks you are. There's a lot in it. We'll unpack that one later. I don't, I don't even know that one completely. Uh, one of our teachers said, put your phones away and look up. It's advice for a lot of people, a lot of ages. And then one of our, our, our high school girls said, stay a long, long, long distance away from boys. So as, as a father of three girls, I can resonate. I think that's great advice for them to understand. So what I want us to understand, though, is that legacy is more than just these cliche kind of advice phrases. It's really what we're seeing is Follow this example that I've set before you. Follow the example that I've lived out. Not just verbally said, but that this example you've seen modeled before me. And so as we read this letter from Paul to Timothy, we see that. That Paul is saying, follow my example. Follow the example that I am following from Christ. And that's what legacy is. Right? This generations of generations passing on these Christ-like examples. So if you brought a Bible, turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, page 995. If you need a Bible, there's one in the chair back in front of you. 2 Timothy, chapter 1. Before we dive into the scripture, I want to give you a little bit of the background of what we're reading in this letter. Certainly, as Pastor Dave mentioned last week, Paul was was in prison at the time, and nearing persecution, nearing death, and kind of at the end of his life, and writes this, this heartfelt, passionate letter to Timothy, who was like a son to him. Timothy was ministering in a city called Ephesus. And Ephesus was becoming kind of a a melting pot of culture. And whenever you have a melting pot of culture, there are pros and there are cons. Some of the pros would be, I I love food from around the world. I love to see how different food is prepared and different spices and seasons that they use. And certainly the the melting pot of culture would allow that. You get to see different entertainments different things, and just the way they do different things. And, And there's joy and value and fun in that. But also there is, there's some difficulty when you have a melting pot of culture. And one of the things they were facing in Ephesus was people coming from these different regions with different ideologies and different beliefs. And these beliefs were beginning to become a distraction to the believers of Ephesus. Some of them were in idolatry, demonism. But one of the ones that was, was prevalent and common was something called Gnosticism. And there is a danger in Gnosticism because it, it kind of sounds like Christianity to some people until you understand what it actually is. The crux of Gnosticism is the idea that you can kind of work your way to think your way to a God-like status. That through transcendence and through training your mind and doing enough good things, you could eventually become like God. And certainly there is a danger in that. And the people of Ephesus were were hearing that and living with these people who were thinking the same way. In fact, one of the most popular verses that Paul writes is in the book of Ephesians, which is a letter to the people of Ephesus. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast. This is directed at that group of people. Certainly it is is relevant to us today, but directed at them because of their way of thinking, that I could work myself to heaven. I could work myself to be like God. I could begin to think as if I am God. And so we see Paul would encourage Timothy throughout the New Testament through his letters to remain pure to the sound doctrine, not deviate from the Scriptures, and so we see this constant reminder and encouragement to stick to the scriptures, to not begin to kind of pick and choose whatever kind of you liked about certain religions, but to stick to scripture. And so what we realize is that Paul, as he was writing this letter, had this sense that the community was caring less about theology, which is the study of God, and more about what we could almost call meology. How can I be like God? And so he writes this letter to encourage them not to deviate from Scripture, to not lose focus of who God is and what God has done in their life. And that's what we're going to pick up today. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave in us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. See, when we see Paul give this advice, it is more than just that kind of cliche phrase. Right? This is he's saying, follow my example. Follow the example that I am following from Christ. Right, we see this is more than just a little bit of some encouragement, but this is more of a call to Timothy on how to live, how to live out his faith. And so there are really kind of three key things we're going to pull out of this text today. There is a lot in this text, right? It is a great text to kind of read through and you're going to find something new every time. But today we're going to look at three key components of this letter that Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him in his faith. The very first thing, the foundation of what we have to build upon today is the first thing is do not be ashamed of the gospel. Throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, Paul encourages his readers to not be ashamed of the gospel, to not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Now shame has a little different context in our culture now than it did then. When we think of kind of being ashamed, you think of maybe doing something, or this feeling of embarrassment where you, you didn't mean to do it that way, or you didn't want to come across that way. You just feel kind of embarrassed about it. But shame in that culture was much more rooted in honor. In fact, the word here actually is dishonor. I want to read to you uh, an excerpt from a book that studies kind of the first century Mediterranean culture to kind of get the, the understanding of the value of honor in their culture. So a person born into the first century Mediterranean world, whether Gentile or Jewish, was trained from childhood to seek honor and to avoid disgrace. Honor is essentially the affirmation of one's worth by one's peers in society, awarded on the basis of the the individual's ability to embody the virtues and attributes that his or her society values. There are certain attributes and values in our life that are uncontrollable. Being born into a, a noble family or a wealthy family or a powerful family is an uncontrollable thing. But then there are attributes and virtues that are accessible to all. Perseverance. Reliability. Courage. And Paul is encouraging him throughout this to not be ashamed of his faith. To train himself to teach to not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. And so I think we have to think, why would Paul say this? Paul knows the value of this in two different ways. Certainly he has been the recipient of many beatings and sufferings, and persecution, and imprisonment, because of his faith. He has seen lives change because of his faith, and the not being ashamed of it. But also, the very opposite. true. Paul was also the deliverer of many sufferings, many beatings, and many imprisonment, for those who stood up for their faith. So Paul very much so understood the value of not being ashamed of the Gospel. And so what he encourages Timothy with is he says there's three fears that lead to shame. Because what we see is that really, shame is a companion of fear. The majority of shame is rooted in fear. And so there are three key fears that Paul talks about. And not just identifying what the fear is, but then what does Christ have to do with that fear. The first one we see is the fear of rejection. In verse 14, we see this fear of rejection, fear of, of not being good enough. Because what tends to happen as we think about shame, an image that comes to my mind would be something like a turtle. Right? If you think about a turtle, whenever they face a difficult situation, they just kind of duck into their shell and just kind of get away from that situation. Right, sometimes in that Christian faith, we kind of handle our responsibilities the same way. We know God is asking us to do something. God is calling us to live a certain way. but We just kind of duck into that shell. I'm not really going to deal with that right now. I'm not going to confront that right now. I'm not I'm going to kind of just duck into my shell and leave that alone. And so what happens, what does shame look like in our Christian faith then? As we find ourselves kind of ducking away from responsibility. And we feel that we're not good enough. And when you feel that you're not good enough, oftentimes you try to avoid being a part of that. This morning, I feel I can confess something to you. Honestly, we'll keep it just between us, the Lex Campus, and the internet. So between all of us, we'll just keep that. It'll be my secret. I'm going to confess that I am a terrible golfer. Terrible. Terrible golfer. But what's interesting is my family... When I was younger, we all kind of picked up golf at the same time. My younger brother, my father, my mother, we all started golfing at the same time. Right now, what was interesting and fun for them is that the more golf we played, the better that they got at golf. I was always terrible. I actually have a special golf ability. I defy the law of physics when I play golf. I can remember one time, the four of us went out to play, and I'm getting ready to tee off, my brother, my father, my mother, right? And I'm here. The hole is somewhere over there. It doesn't really matter because I can't hit it that way anyways. So I'm getting ready to tee off. Brother, father, mother, they're all behind me. I go to swing. I swing. I don't know where the ball went. So I just hear, oh! I look back. I had somehow hit the ball backwards into my mom. I don't know how. It's really probably a special power, but I don't know how I did it, right? I've defied the law of physics. It's shot off. It hit my mom in the shin, and she is hurt. That's my golf story. Everybody was like, oh, I got a hole in one. I got a birdie. I got an eagle. Oh, no, I hit my mom with a golf ball. That's my golf story. So what tends to happen is they want to keep playing golf more and more and more, right? Because they were excelling. They were getting better at it. They were enjoying it. I was coming in last place every single time. There's not a lot of fun things happening in last place. And so I wanted to do it less and less. Like, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to go. I don't want to golf. I want to get away from it. Right? And we begin to kind of, if we're not good at something, we can't improve at something. We try to avoid what it is. We try to avoid that. And sometimes we do that with with elements of our Christian faith. Well, I, I'm I'm not very good at praying. I don't I don't really, like, I'm not good at that. I'm not really good at like studying God's word, like understanding God's word. Like, I, I don't really like understand all that. I'm, I'm not really good at conversations. I, I don't really like talking to people. I don't really. And so we, like, build up these excuses and these, like, oh, I, I can't really do this. I can't. I'm not good at it, so I don't do it. But if you look at verse 14, Paul addresses this fear of rejection, fear of not being good enough. And he says, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, right, it is the Holy Spirit who will do the work, right? It is not our ability. It is the Holy Spirit working through us that we will accomplish those things, right? And when you think it's because of you, That's really the foundation of that meology, That life is about me. But what we have to understand about this fear of rejection, fear of not being good enough, is that it is the Holy Spirit who will work through us to do those things. And so Paul writes this to kind of encourage them and says, listen, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be afraid of, of not being good enough. God will take care of you. God will give you what you need to do what you need. And he writes this to kind of encourage him along his journey. Because as he was facing persecution, he was facing ridicule, he was facing people who were arguing his beliefs. He said, God will give you what you need. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be afraid of rejection. Don't be afraid of not being good enough. God will give you what you need when you need it. The next fear that we see Paul reference is the fear of suffering. In verse 8, we see Paul reference his fear of suffering and the suffering that he's going through. In fact, he says to join with me in suffering. There are really four different facets to suffering in our lives. It could be physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. really four different ways of suffering. But within that, there's really three principles we have to understand about suffering. The first one is that suffering is going to happen. Right? We live in a fallen, broken world. Suffering will happen. It's going to be a part of life. And and there's really no getting away from it. And because it's going to be a part of life, the second thing we see is that suffering allows us to be comforted by Christ. Suffering allows us to understand who Christ really is on a personal level. I want to read to you an excerpt from a book called Suffering and the Sovereignty of God by John Piper. When you've passed through your own fiery trials and found God to be true to what he says, you have real help to offer. You have first-hand experience of both his sustaining grace and his purposeful design. He has kept you through pain. He has reshaped you more into his image. What you are experiencing from God, you can give away in increasing measure to others. You are learning both the tenderness and the clarity necessary to help sanctify another person's deepest distress. And so maybe, maybe you're walking through something, or maybe you have walked through something. It's just been difficult, just been an element of suffering in that. And what we see is that really suffering is a battle. Right? Suffering is a fight. You have to choose how to suffer. Throughout Scripture, there are examples of how to suffer. One says you you can curse God for the suffering that you have to experience. But then as you look at the life of Paul, you see Paul sing praises as he walks through suffering. In fact, a great example is found in the book of Acts, chapter 16. It starts at verse 16. We're not going to turn there, but if if you're looking to kind of dive more into that, Acts 16, 16 is a story of Paul who's being beaten and imprisoned and ridiculed and mocked and is sitting in jail. You get to see him just cry out to God. Just sing praises to God for the situation he's in. And just a great picture of how to praise God through suffering. And see, we need those examples. That's what legacy is. Legacy is we need these examples. We need people who can model suffering well. Right? And we can look at those examples and take comfort in that. That people before us have suffered well. And that's what legacy is, is passing on, living out those moments in your life. So that others may see that. So after that. After the fear of suffering, we see this fear of death referenced. That This fear of, like you know, he's facing persecution at the time. And certainly the, the fear of death was a real fear. But what, what Paul writes to him in verse 10 is that Christ abolished death. Christ abolished death. The Greek word katarigo, which means it made it inoperable. Certainly death still exists but it's no longer the end. It's not the end for a believer. I want to share with you a story about a young lady who felt the call to be a missionary in Iraq. Felt that God was just leading her there, God was calling her there. So she sold her car, sold her house, gave away her belongings, and prepared to move to Iraq. Understanding the the violence that was there, the terrorist attacks that were there, understanding kind of the danger that was in front of her. She said, I think God is calling me here. So part of her preparation before she left is she wrote this letter to her pastor in the congregation. Said, if for some reason I do not return, please share this with the congregation. And she was killed in a terrorist attack along with four other missionaries. So later the the pastor opens the letter And begins to read it to the congregation and this is what it says. If something happens and I do not return, there are no regrets for I am with Jesus. She went on to say, my call is to obedience. Suffering is expected. His glory is my reward. She repeated it. She underlined it. His glory Is my reward. See, we have to have an understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done to overcome these fears. Only by a right view of Christ and his power are our fear and shame going to be overcome. And in order to understand who Christ is, we have to follow the pattern of sound words. That's point number two. Follow the pattern of sound words. Right, when you look at these words and you break it down in kind of the original text, the phrase sound words is actually the Greek word hygieno, which is where we get the word hygiene. But what it actually means is like healthy or in balance, and so following these, these words that give you balance in your life, these healthy words, because there's beginning to be doctrines and words from all over. As cultures and communities were coming together, all these different ideologies and phrases and thoughts and beliefs were coming together. So, Paul says, Follow the pattern of sound words. And even more than follow, it, it gives us this glimpse of the text of the, the words to hold, hold fast, or to cling on to these words, to hold fast to God's word. At my house, we've been teaching a, a game that I used to play when I was younger. It's a game called jackpot. If you've never played jackpot before, it's simply like this. You have one person who is the thrower. They have some sort of ball that they're going to be throwing into a large group of people. As you throw the ball, you yell out a number. If you catch it, you get that number. When you reach some sort of numerical amount that is set beforehand, you become the new thrower, unless you yell jackpot. In which case, if you catch the jackpot, you become the new thrower automatically. And so we've been playing this at my house and and we've been throwing the ball and just watching my kids just grab onto this ball. You yell, Jack, they grab it, they cling onto it and no one's going to rip it away from them. It's right there, they're holding on so tight, as tight as they can, just clinging onto that ball. I thought, is that an accurate description of how we handle God's word? That we're just holding onto it so tight that no one can rip it away from us. Just gripping it so tight right there. Think about, how, when we read through Scripture, how the Scripture describes God's Word. In, in Psalm 119, 130, it says, Think, uh, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Are you clinging to God's word with that sort of vigor and intentionality? Is God's word a light unto your path? Is it showing you the way to go? Is it guiding you where you need to go? Because if it's not, something is. Something is guiding your life. And there can be a lot of bad guides if you choose to not use God's word. Things that are going to lead you not to where you want to go. And you'll be stuck somewhere. I remember when I was younger, I went on vacation with my mom and dad and my brother. My mom won a free trip to go to a ranch in Tucson, Arizona. I'd never been there, never been to the desert. thought what a unique cultural experience this would be. So we, we get out there, I thought, I want to do something where I can kind of just like get a glimpse of what life is like here. You know, we're in the kind of the middle of the desert, we're on this kind of a cool-looking ranch. Like, I, I want to do something that is going to be like unique to this area. So I'm like looking through like all the activities and things you can go and do, and one of them was this desert hike. I thought like, I've never been in the desert before. It seems like a, an interesting opportunity to try something new. So I signed up for it. The next morning I show up for the desert hike. It's me and a group of other people. And then we have our desert hiking guide. Who you expect to guide you on the desert path that we're on, let you know about dangers that might be around, let you know about things to avoid. And he didn't. He didn't do that. In fact, we're, we're walking or we're hiking through the desert. I'm looking around. You know, I, I see some cactus. I see some sand. I'm thinking to myself, this may be the most unadventurous hike I've ever been a part of. But then I see something kind of right next to my foot. It's not a cactus, certainly not sand, but I've never really seen this before, at least not in real life. So I'm looking out of it, and then it moves just a little bit. I thought, that's not good. That's not good. So I said, excuse me, what's this? Like I'm like a tourist, like I'm just like, can we explain what this little thing is? And he walks over to see what I'm pointing to, and he goes, oh, and just gasps. And it's never a good response when you ask, "What is this?" And the response is a gasp. Never good. And he says, "Don't move." Okay, you've got my attention. I will not move. I'm still very close to it. Not going to move. I said, "What is it?" He said, "It's a rattlesnake." I said, uh, "Excuse me." He said, "Slowly back away from it." And now I'm confused. I've been given two steps. Step one. Don't move. Step two: slowly back away. I don't know if you can understand this, but that kind of contradicts each other. And so now I'm confused, a little startled, more than a little startled actually, and also kind of annoyed that you know I nearly stepped on a snake, and the, you know this excellent tour guide has walked right past it, and now is giving me differing instructions. And so I just kind of take a big step out of the way and just kind of like get away from it. He's like, man, that could have been really dangerous. Like that's great advice now, like. I'm, this could have, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about it later. But it's it's that idea of like, you know, we we get these guides and like it just it doesn't guide you like God's word guides you. In fact, it may lead you right next to trouble. It may lead you right next to a dangerous situation. And if God's word is your guide, that may happen. But it's going to give you a, a way out. It's going to give you a way to respond, and not just stand there and be confused. Does that describe how we view God's word? Do we hold fast to God's word? Because if you don't hold fast to God's word, then you don't have the proper view of Christ. And if you don't have the proper view of Christ, you're going to end up dealing with the fear of rejection, the fear of not being good enough, the fear of suffering, the fear of death. Because you don't trust in Christ and Christ's promises because you're afraid. And so you have to hold fast to God's word to not have to worry about those fears. And the only way you can hold fast to it is to really to follow it, right? To follow the sound teaching, you have to cling to it. To follow the sound teaching, you have to obey it. To follow the sound teaching, you have to live it out. That's what holding fast looks like. Not just looking at a verse every once in a while, but to cling to it and then to live it out. The third thing we see in this letter is that we are called to guard the good deposit. In fact, the word guard here is the Greek word philasso. Which is like a, if a military was to guard something. If a military were to kind of set up a, the boundaries and they were going to guard whatever it was. And what I immediately thought about when I heard the definition is like the guards that guard Buckingham Palace. And I did a little research on, on those guards. It's very interesting to me how diligent and dedicated and prepared they are to guard the palace, right? As you read through some of the, the nuances and the training that they go through. In fact, I found that the hats that they wear, those big black, like, fur-skin hats, weigh about nine pounds. But the sole purpose they make them wear them is so they look more intimidating, that they look taller, right? They wear black pants when they perform the guard. And the reason they wear these black pants is because they don't allow them to take restroom breaks. So that if you have to use the restroom, it's not noticeable. Right? And then they are trained to faint a certain way. Right? That if you're going to faint, you have to faint forward so that people know. So diligent in their pre- training. So diligent in their preparedness. So careful in, in what they're teaching them on how to guard the palace. Is that the way that we would describe how we guard something? It says we are to guard the good deposit. Now what is this good deposit? If we're supposed to guard it, it would be good to identify what it is. The good deposit is really laid out in verses 9, 10, and 11. It is the message of salvation. It is our call to holiness. It is kind of us understanding what God has done, what Christ has done in our life. And and we see that in verses 9, 10, and 11. It is Christ abolishing death. Right? And now we are called to guard the good deposit. So normally if you want to guard something, you put it somewhere safe, you might lock it up, you might try and hide it, you might try and keep it away from everybody. But if you are called to guard the good deposit and that which you're called to guard is not an item but information. And not just information, it is life-changing information. The way you would guard that information is to share that information with reliable people who will then share that information with reliable people. And that's where we get this legacy from. Right? If you look through the history of Christianity, Christianity is built on legacy. Built on people following the example that is set before them. Starting with Christ. And you can kind of trace through history people who followed the example of Christ who then followed the example of someone else and someone else. And so we need people who are going to have a Christ-like legacy. And that was Paul's instruction to Timothy. To not be ashamed of what the gospel is. To not be ashamed of what Christ has done. To not be distracted by the other beliefs and ideologies around you. but to be this courageous Christian. I want to show you kind of a little bit of example of legacy through the realms of literature. A long time ago, there was a, a book called The Bruised Reed*. Bruised Reed* was given to a man named Richard Baxter who read the book and then became one of the greatest Puritan pastors, who then wrote a book that a man named Philip Doddridge read and then he wrote a book. And then William Wilberforce read his book And it changed his life so much, it encouraged him to fight the abolition of slavery. And then he wrote a book, which then inspired Charles Coulson, and how he ran and kind of began his prison ministry. There is generation after generation of of not perfect people, sinners who are living out a Christ-like legacy, impacting the next generation in a large way. And so as we're closing today, I want you to kind of understand what, what Paul is asking of Timothy. To so really to live a life that is gospel-focused, kingdom-minded. And sometimes when we hear that phrase, we, we think of like the most extreme measure ever. Like, Is God going to ask me to move to Iraq? Is, God, is he going to ask me to move to this remote village and, and live amongst the people there? Maybe. Possibly. Right, and if he is... Be courageous and go. But maybe it's not at that extreme of an ask. Maybe what you're being called to is is really holy living. Right? Maybe you're being called to holiness. And maybe in your friend group, your family group, your your peers, your coworkers, maybe it's you abstaining from some of the sinful acts to set the example. Maybe it's being a a, a Christ-like father for your family. Maybe it's leading a Bible study with a group of friends or people you work with. Maybe maybe it's just being a really good neighbor. And can I encourage you, whatever you're being called to do, to be courageous in your faith. Maybe, Maybe it's more than that. Maybe you know that there is a conversation that you need to have. That there is a friend or family member who is stuck in sin. They're trapped and they need that encouragement, they need that prayer, they need that conversation that says, "You know what you, you're better than this. God cares about you. Maybe, maybe it's a conversation that's centered around your faith. Maybe it's a conversation that's centered around what Christ has done in your life. Maybe it's a conversation about their salvation. And remember the excuses we can cut. Oh, I'm, I'm not very good at, at talking. I don't really know that kind of stuff. I'm not really, no, no, no. Don't get caught up in those distractions. Don't get caught up in those fears. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. In Romans 1:16 says, do not be ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of salvation. It's not you. It's not your ability. The Holy Spirit will use you. Don't worry about your abilities. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. So as we're praying today, I want you to really think, where is God calling you to be courageous? Is he calling you to be courageous in how you share the gospel? To not be ashamed of what God has done for you? Is he calling you to be courageous to cling to God's word? To live it out, to not just to know it a little bit, but to live out God's word. Is he calling you to be courageous and obedient in what he's asking you to do? And whatever it is, my prayer is that you will have the courage to do what needs to be done, to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to boldly proclaim Christ wherever you go. Can we pray together? Lord, we thank you for a chance to to worship this morning. We thank you for your word and the life that you've lived and the example that you have set before us. We thank you for the, the ultimate legacy to leave. Lord, we thank you for those examples that have set in front of us, those Christ-like examples. Maybe family members, friends, but those who have boldly proclaimed your name and your love. Lord, thank you. Thank you for those examples. Thank you for those who have lived to such a courageous faith. Lord, our prayer this morning is not simply a prayer of thanks, but a prayer of We want to, we want to be courageous as well. Lord, give us the courage to be obedient to your calling. Give us the courage to boldly follow you. Give us the courage to go where we need to go, to say what needs to be said. Lord, give us the courage to do that. Lord, we are sorry when we have made this life not about you, but about us. When we have actually been more of a distraction to who you are instead of proclaiming the gospel. Lord, forgive us. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your example. Thank you for your legacy. Lord, we love you. And we pray. Amen.